turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is vacationing, but he's technically the producer. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Meg Meeker. She is the author of Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. Yeah, she's talking to you, Dad. We'll uh, talk with her later this hour. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's an authority on a wide range of issues, civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration. We're going to talk about the Texas um, uh, trial that is challenging the districts, uh, the lines that have been drawn, uh, the voting districts. So we'll get into that with him. Uh, this could be a monumental case, not only for Texas, of course, but certainly for other parts of the country. And we'll talk with the stream's Liberty McArder. Uh, she has written a column and has been following very closely the battle for Charlie Gard. He's the 11 year old, uh, excuse me, the 11 month old baby in the UK whose uh, life is uh, being, uh, well, the, the decisions about his life are being managed by the courts there. We'll talk about what's happening and uh, what options are available should the court decide in a hearing that's scheduled for Thursday to reconsider their decision to pull the plug on the child and to allow him to die. This is despite the fact that the parents have raised significant money to bring him to the United States for experimental treatment. The fact that some several hundred doctors have signed a, a document, a petition, if you will, uh, to the federal courts there, the European Union and the U.K., suggesting that there is some hope for this child. This experimental treatment uh, offers something of a 10 percent chance in this very serious case. Uh, He would not be um, managed by the U.K., the European Union. He would not be a burden on them financially. He would not require time and attention there. Anyway, we'll get into that um, when she joins us uh, in the bottom of the five o'clock hour. So looking forward to that. Well, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm a little exhausted by the kinds of stories that make headline news these days. And this latest one is a completely unnecessary distraction from the people's business. But nonetheless, it's an important story that... Uh, needs to be fleshed out, I suppose. But uh, we have uh, learned today that Donald Trump Jr. apparently held a meeting with an attorney from Russia uh, with the pretext that it was going to be an opportunity to learn some opposition research on Donald Trump's uh, opponent at the time, Hillary Clinton, uh, the naive uh, son of the presidential candidate at the time, uh, took the meeting rather enthusiastically. And now we know that the email exchange that led up to uh, the meeting uh, has now been uh, made available, and many have been complimenting uh, Donald Trump Jr. for his transparency. However, the New York Times had already threatened that they were going to reveal the emails, although one wonders, how does the New York Times have them? And that's a whole other subject. But bipartisan members of the Senate uh, 
lead probe into the allegations of Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election are clamoring for the testimony of the president's eldest son into new revelations that he did, in fact, meet last year with the, a, a lawyer in a meeting um, he has denounced as a big yawn. Now, I'm reading many of the reports about who this lawyer was, that she was Kremlin linked. There isn't any evidence to actually make that connection. Um, however, the pretext of the meeting was that we have information from the Russian government that will um, be useful in exposing Hillary Clinton, then the candidate for the Democrat Party. So while the lawyer apparently has no Kremlin links, that was the uh, the idea that um, attracted Donald Trump Jr. to the meeting. Now, on Monday, lawmakers returned from their Independence Day recess to Capitol Hill to reports that were later confirmed by the president's son himself of what appeared to be the first confirmed private meeting between members of then-candidate Trump's inner circle and Russians. Now, this, uh, again, with Kremlin ties, I'm, I'm reading that, but the uh, research that I've done so far doesn't really yield that there was a Kremlin tie, but... There was an alleged Kremlin tie to try to get the meeting. So it applies and it doesn't. Well, the June 9th, 2016 meeting occurred at New York, uh, at the New York Trump Tower two weeks after Mr. Trump secured the Republican nomination, included Mr. Trump, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Trump Jr. Let me clarify that his son in law, Jared Kushner, now a top White House advisor and Mr. Trump's then campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. The three met with the uh, attorney, um, in that private meeting. Well, reportedly, um, uh, active in a campaign by the Russian government to overturn the uh, the uh, Magnitsky uh, Act, which is the law the U.S. Congress passed in 2012 that withholds visas and freezes the financial assets of Russian officials accused of human rights violations. Uh, this attorney claimed to have damaging information about Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. Apparently, she did not. There was a single meeting. It didn't go anywhere. But uh, the the thing that sticks out is that's what um, Mr. Trump Jr. was led to believe, and he took the meeting. Well, the circumstances surrounding the meeting and a reported uh, New York Times uh, article uh, late Monday that Mr. Trump was, Mr. Trump Jr. was told ahead of time that the source of the information was the Russian government, fuel some new questions about the Trump campaign's possible ties to Moscow. Now, there isn't a tie here to Moscow, but it does suggest that there was a willingness to uh, accept information from them that might have had an influence or impact on the uh, the campaign. Uh, it's being scrutinized by federal and congressional investigators. And as I think I've mentioned here before, there are some 11 investigations into possible collusion and Russia's uh, attempt to impact the U.S. elections. Now, the Times reported that Mr. Trump Jr., uh, who was a key campaign advisor to his father, was told the Russian government was behind the information on Clinton in an email from music publicist Rob Goldstone. The Times cited three unnamed persons with knowledge of the email, and it was uh, later released by Donald Trump Jr. Jr., uh, the New York Times had threatened to release it themselves, which they may still do. The report is the first public word, uh, what uh, rather, that Mr. Trump Jr. accepted the meeting with the understanding that he would be presented with damaging information about his father's political opponent and that the, uh, uh, the material uh, could have emanated from the Kremlin. Now, I should mention that uh, he is going to be interviewed by John Hannity on Fox News later this evening. It'll be the first uh, opportunity that he will speak for himself to uh, apparently, presumably, flesh out the rest of the story and answer some serious questions about what uh, what happened and what this might mean. So you might want to check that out.
Well, Donald Trump uh, released uh, what he said was the entire email chain of his conversations, setting up a disputed meeting with a, a Russian attorney showing what appeared to be an offer to provide this information that would incriminate Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton as part of uh, Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. The president's eldest son seemed to readily accept that offer, and uh, the president himself responding uh, to it has said that his son is a highly quality person. Um, uh, He issued a brief statement uh, standing by his eldest son following the release of these emails detailing that meeting. White House Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders read the statement from the president during the off-camera press briefing earlier today before referring questions to the matter, or rather questions on the matter, to Donald Trump Jr.'s outside counsel. My son is a high-quality person, and I applaud his transparency, the uh, statement said. Sanders had uh, adamantly defended the president's son a day earlier, but the emails, which Donald Trump Jr. released on Twitter earlier today, uh, quickly have caused uh, new headaches for the administration and certainly another distraction that's self-imposed. What was described as the entire chain uh, email chain showed the discussions that led up to the 2016 meeting between the president's son and a Russian attorney who supposedly claimed to have information that could incriminate Hillary Clinton during the presidential campaign. Again, he will speak for himself tonight on Hannity. I'm not sure what time that is, but I'm certain all the other networks will be commenting on it if you're interested in what he has to say in this ongoing pro. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Meg Meeker, author of Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. I suppose the big question with the Donald Trump Jr. meeting with a Russian attorney is where were the where was the legal counsel for the campaign that might have advised him to think differently about holding such a meeting. It's a big question mark, but we'll reserve that for another time. Well, it's a movement that began before President Donald Trump was sworn into office and the drive for impeachment has gone through many iterations. The earliest rationale was the Constitution's uh, emoluments clause, which uh, came with uh, loose talk of the Trump campaign's alleged collusion with Russia and emerged as the dominant theme. In lieu of a smoking gun in the Russia matter, the prevailing justification became that Trump tried to obstruct an FBI probe of his former national security advisor. More recently, the emoluments issue reemerged when Democratic lawmakers filed lawsuit. We talked about that a couple of uh, weeks ago. MoveOn.org, Democracy for America and other progressive or resistance groups, they've been advocating for it. Representative Maxine Waters who has sort of become the face of the effort, appears to have gotten the most airtime of anyone in Congress talking about impeaching the president on talk shows and public events. Representative Al Green, a Democrat out of Texas, delivered the first House floor speech calling for impeaching uh, Trump. Representative Jackie Speer, a Democrat out of California, called impeachment really the only way we can go. But only Representative Brad Sherman, a Democrat out of California, actually has introduced articles of impeachment. Green's speech and Sherman's uh, measure focused focused on allegations of obstruction of justice. Well, the House Democratic leadership hasn't uh, taken up the call, in part because such actions are unlikely, based on known facts, to go anywhere in a Republican-controlled Congress. Before getting elected to anything, Boyd Roberts, a California congressional candidate, filed documents with the Federal Elections Commission to start a political action committee called Impeach Trump Leadership PAC 
As The Hill has now reported, well, the shifting rationales demonstrate a pretty weak argument, says Ken Boehm. He's the chairman of the National Legal and Policy Center. It's a conservative government watchdog group. If they had a good case based on real information, he says, I think they would mention it by now and put their cards on the table. He's a former Pennsylvania state prosecutor and former counsel for the board of directors at the Legal Services Corporation. They don't have high crimes and misdemeanors. They don't have low crimes and misdemeanors, he went on to say. Well, Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution includes high crimes and misdemeanors as grounds for impeachment, along with treason and bribery. Oh, I heard that word used a couple of times today in connection with Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with an attorney from Russia. But impeachment is ultimately a political question, and Republicans control the House of Representatives. Even if Democrats manage to flip the House and Senate in the 2018 election, it would require a majority vote in the House to impeach a president and two-thirds of the Senate to remove a president from office. Boehm said um, overheated impeachment talk now will delay justice if the president is involved in a legitimate, verifiable uh, scandal. Well, Democrats should save the heavy artillery for substance, he suggests. They run the risk of being the boy who cried wolf if they say impeach about everything. Well, the early framework was set in December of 2016, six weeks before the inauguration day, when five Senate Democrats, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Ben Cardin of Maryland, Chris Coons of of, uh, Delaware, rather, Dick Durbin of Illinois, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, sponsored a bill that would require the president, vice president, and their family members to divest from anything that could create a conflict of interest. The Democrats' bill also states, and I quote, adopting a sense of the uh, Congress that the president's violation of financial conflicts of interest laws or the ethics requirements that apply to executive branch employees constitute a high crime and misdemeanor under the impeachment clauses of the U.S. Constitution. Again, a bit of a stretch. Before he took office, Trump put his liquid properties such as hotels and golf courses into a trust and resigned from official uh, positions with his businesses, turning the Trump organization over to his adult sons, some of whom are actually involved in his uh, day-to-day work. But in January, a liberal watchdog group, Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility in Washington, began raising questions about Trump's business and the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which states that no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Essentially, the clause prohibits personally profiting from public office. The Trump's children run his business now, but there is not a blind trust. In February, Representative Jared Nadler, a Democrat out of New York, filed a resolution of inquiry into Trump's investments that a Huffington Post column framed as the first legislative step toward impeachment. Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility in Washington, or CREW, they filed a lawsuit in the Southern District of New York in January, two days after Trump took office. We didn't want to get to this point. It was our Our hope that President Trump would take the necessary steps to avoid violating the Constitution before he took office. Cruz executive director, Noah, and that's C-R-E-W, not C-R-U, which is a whole other Christian organization. Anyway, Director Noah uh, Bookbinder said in a statement, he did not. His constitutional violations are immediate and serious. He went on to say so. We are forced to take legal action. Well, a spokeswoman for the organization says that she would try to set up an interview with the board chairman of Norman Eisen. However, Eisen didn't respond uh, to that request. However, emoluments faded as grounds for impeachment as some juicy stories about Trump and Russia emerged. After a report in the Washington 
Washington Post accused Trump of talking about classified information with two Russian officials in the Oval Office. Rather, Waters said it rose to the level of impeachment. In May, Waters referred to that alleged sharing of secrets uh, during the Oval Office discussion at the Center for American Progress, a liberal research organization. The California congressman said, congresswoman rather, said, we don't have to be afraid to use the word impeachment. We don't have to think that impeachment is out of our reach. All we have to do is make sure that we are talking to the American public, that we are keeping them involved, that we are resisting every day and we are challenging every day. Yet another major story occurred after Trump fired FBI Director James Comey while the Bureau's Russia investigation was ongoing. Some politicians and commentators compared to uh, President Richard Nixon's Saturday night massacre, the multiple firings related to the investigation of the Watergate scandal. Through a leak, Comey admitted to uh, planting. Americans learned of his accusation that the president asked him to let go of the FBI's investigation of his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, for misrepresenting his pre-inaugural conversation with a Russian ambassador. He asked if there was any hope. Comey said Trump told him, I hope you can see your way clear of letting this go to letting Flynn go. He's a good guy. I hope you can let this go. Well, Democrats were quick to suggest this amounted to obstruction of justice. Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat out of Connecticut, uh, told CNN that Trump's request to Comey was... Uh, may well produce another United States versus Nixon on a subpoena that went to the United States Supreme Court. It may well produce impeachment proceedings, although we're very far from that possibility, end quote. Senator Angus King, an independent out of Maine who caucuses with the Democrats, was asked by CNN's Wolf Blitzer if these allegations, Senator, are true. Are we getting closer and closer to the possibility yet another uh, impeachment process? King replied, reluctantly, Wolf, I have to say yes, simply because obstruction of justice is such a serious matter. Obstruction of justice has a significant place in the impeachment uh, history. President Bill Clinton was impeached on this charge in the House in 1998, and it was the the basis, rather, of one article of impeachment passed by the House Judiciary Committee in 1974 before Nixon resigned. Obstruction of justice also is the basis for Sherman's impeachment draft. After Comey's June 8th testimony to the Senate Intelligence Committee provided few revelations and the obstruction case became more difficult to make. The focus shifted back to the emoluments clause. Democratic state attorney generals sued for information on Trump's business ties, including his elusive income tax returns. Comey told the panel the president didn't order him to drop the case and when questioned uh, said he knew of no prosecution based on someone's hope. Numerous legal scholars said they didn't believe there was a viable obstruction case based on the February 14th Oval Office conversation between Trump and Comey. With an impeachment case based on Russian and obstruction of justice, not uh, as strong emoluments made a comeback in June. The I word is not something you should uh, throw around uh, that much. And the Democrats are playing fast and loose with the emoluments lawsuit where the merits uh, are weak and the standing claims are laughable. That's a quote from John Michael Seibler, a legal fellow at the Edwin Meese, the third center for legal and judicial studies, uh, who has written about Democrats, various suits, uh, Maryland attorney general, uh, Brian Frosch and District, Attorney, uh, District of Columbia Attorney General Carl Racine, both Democrats, sued over the emoluments clause, accusing the president of violating the Constitution regarding the foreign government's doing business with the Trump International Hotel in Washington. Following that, 198 congressional Democrats filed a lawsuit making essentially the same claim. The lawsuits would define emoluments so broadly that the provision would be used against anyone, Seibler said. It's basically an op-ed before the court. You look at the uh, bill Senator Warren sponsored, he added, the lawsuits ask 
for um, declaratory judgment to fill a very wide gap in reasoning. Well, A, B, C to impeach President Trump. We'll see where or if anything flies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Meg Meek. She is a best-selling author of Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. We'll talk about her latest book, Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Children Need. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, whether you know it or not, my next guest says, if you're a dad, you're a hero. Well, that's the message of best-selling author and pediatrician Meg Meeker. Even if you're struggling with all the demands of fatherhood, let Dr. Meeker reassure you every man has it within him to be the hero father his children need. With simple step-by-step instructions and drawing on long experience, including her work with the NFL's fatherhood initiative, Dr. Meeker, she shows you how to be the father you want to be and the, the uh, a father your children uh, need you to be. Uh, As uh, Dr. Meeker writes, if you want what is best for your children, if you want what's best for you, you should strive to be a hero father. And her book shows you how. Well, Dr. Meg uh, Meeker uh, has spent more than 30 years practicing pediatric and adolescent medicine and counseling teens and parents. Dr. Meeker is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics, serves on the advisory board of the the, uh, Medical Institute, and is an associate professor of medicine at Michigan State School of Human Medicine. A popular speaker and best-selling author, she works with the NFL Fatherhood Initiative and spoke at the UN in 2016 on family issues. Dr. Meeker lives and works in northern Michigan, where she shares a medical practice with her husband, Walter. They have four children. She joins us today to talk about her book, Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Children Need. Dr. Meeker, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, that word hero is a very big word, and what comes to mind are the very popular superhero movies where there's a cape and some kind of a slick outfit. How are you defining hero in the context of being a strong father your children need? Well, that's a great question, and I define it as kids define it. And the reason I call the book Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Children Need, is because I wanted the fathers to get a glimpse of who they are from behind their kids' eyes. And a hero from a child's perspective, which every father is, because every child when they're little looks to their dad as stronger, smarter, um, wiser than any man on earth, A hero father is one who looks after his kids, engages his kids, protects his kids, loves them like crazy, and who's there for his kids. It has nothing to do with how much money they make, whether they're athletic or not, how fit they are, what kind of a job they are, what kind of house they provide for their family or wives provide. It really is all about how a child sees a father as as his hero, because that's how kids look to their fathers as heroes. It's it's a job or a role that fathers don't have to earn. Their kids give them the role of hero um, when kids are born, you know, from toddlerhood on. Mm -hmm. They look to their dads as heroes. So really what a dad just needs to do is maintain that status. But if you talk to most fathers, they don't feel like heroes. And my, my goal in writing this book was to say, in your child's eyes, you are where they want you to be. You know, I love the way you put that, that they already have that status as fathers, assuming they are serving as, as fathers to their children. It's theirs to lose. And I, I would imagine there are some men listening today who are fathers 
who feel like they've already lost that status, maybe early on, maybe later in their uh, their children's lives. Uh, is yeah. it possible to restore at least a modicum of that position in the eyes of their children if they've fallen off the pedestal? Absolutely. You know, here's the thing that fathers need to understand. And Fathers aren't encouraged anywhere. As a matter of fact, they're marginalized yes. and shamed and demeaned if you look how they're portrayed in sitcoms and movies. But it's never, ever, ever too late for a father to reconcile with his children or to, even if they're not estranged, but to make up for lost time or ask his kids for forgiveness for the mistakes he's made. Because children begin their relationship with their fathers as a child to an adult. You know, dads look at it as dads don't need their kids. Kids need their fathers. And even those of us who are adults who have fathers, um, we still know that we look to our dads as, in, in some ways, larger than life. And, and those who have bad dads, of course, who fathers who have made a lot of mistakes, carry a lot of pain. But every child... Every son or daughter, I shouldn't say child, every son or daughter, no matter what their age, either wants more reconciliation and more healing in their relationship with their fathers or more time with them if they have a great dad. So kids, sons and daughters, are connected to their fathers by a gold cord. Dads don't feel it. Kids know it. We know it because as adults we know what fathers mean to us. So it's never too late for fathers. Mm. Um, I would imagine there are, are some men listening who um, reflect on their relationship with their own father. Uh, you have a chapter that's titled, You Are Not Your Dad. Yes. For those who haven't had that modeled for them and feel like they're sort of out there on their own without an example to look to, what do you say to them, uh, or if they've had a father who fell far short of what they aspire to be and what their children need? Well, this is exactly how I got involved with the NFL, because many of the men... Um, didn't have fathers. Either the fathers abandoned them when they were born, or they had very, very painful lives with fathers. Not all of them, but some of them. And and the whole purpose in my coming in was to say, I know you didn't have a role model, but here's here's how you can do this. First and foremost, it's important for any man as a father to look back and say, what did I want from my dad that I never got? That's very, very important because if a dad doesn't begin to reconcile what he wanted as a boy and he will carry that pain into his relationship with his own kids and that will be sort of acted out in his parenting. So that's very important to look back, say, what did I want, what did I not get, to grieve that and then move forward. And then um, I really write sort of a template for a lot of fathers. Here's how you move forward when you don't know what to do. The cool thing about men is that they're very, very practical. They say, okay, I have a problem. I don't know how to do this. Tell me what to do. So if you tell them what to do, they'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of women will say, well, are you sure? But um, who's responsible? But they'll say, okay, I'll do that. And, And it's amazing to watch men go into being a dad who don't have a template, who don't have a role model, who say, you know what, I can do this, I can do this, and and I can engage this way. And I really go into that in my book to really help dads um, get the big stuff right with their kids, and that's all kids want anyway. It's just for dads to get the big stuff right. 
Yeah. Um, you suggest that fathers are, and you know, kids need a mother and a father. They're both important. They play significant and unique roles in the upbringing of children. But you suggest that fathers are even more important to their children than their mothers are. Explain what you mean by that, particularly in a culture where men are largely, particularly in, in um, entertainment media, they're marginalized. They're sort of the unnecessary appendage that's uh, the the brunt of every joke. Yes. Uh, we uh, Kids need a father or women need a man like a fish needs a bicycle. We hear that over and over mm-hmm. and over. Um, people giggle. But here's what I mean by that. When it comes to identity formation in kids, kids see their fathers very differently from their mothers, and it's good. Kids see their mothers as the person who has to love them, who can never go away, who's always there, who um, they can rely on and depend upon, Because if a child feels early in life that mom doesn't love you, then why live your life? Because at least if no one else in the world loves you, mom has to love you. So kids perceive that, that a mom's love is non-negotiable. But when it comes to their fathers, they perceive, this man doesn't have to love me. I wish I could tell you where this comes from, and I can't. But this is what kids have told me over 30 years, is that if they get dad's love and attention, then they are something really special. And I think that many of us adults can identify with that. When dad said you were smart, you were smart. If your mom said you were smart, well, okay. But that's kind of what your mom has to say. (laughs) So dads carry an authority in a child's life that a mother doesn't. It doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's just very differently, different. But this is important when it comes to identity formation in kids, because kids read their fathers for clues about what dad believes about them and thinks about them and feels about them. And when they get those clues, they internalize them, and that's who they become. So in other words, if dad says, you know what, you're never going to amount to anything, you're not going to amount to anything. If dad says, you're capable, you're smart, you're going somewhere, you're going to go somewhere. Um, And so that's what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the book Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Children Need. And if you don't know how to do that, this is a great resource that's designed to help you, first of all, recognize how your children view you and the value you bring to your Uh, to your family. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation with Dr. Meg Meeker. She's a best-selling author. Strong Father, Strong Daughter is her earlier book. We're talking about her latest, Hero, Being That Strong Father Your Children Need. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. We're talking with Dr. Meg Meeker. She's the author of Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Children Need. In it, you're going to learn why your children want you to be their hero, even if their relationship with you has been strained or distant, and secrets that can help divorce dads, widowed dads, and stepfathers maintain or, in fact, rebuild a strong relationship with their children. Why previous failures, perhaps in your relationship with your own father, don't have to determine your future relationship with your children. Now let's uh, let's talk about where uh, fathers need to begin if they want to be the hero that their sons and daughters already believe them to be. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Um, the, the, the most important thing is for fathers to realize that what kids want from them is for their fathers to get the big things right. And we talked about that before the break. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? You know, kids want to know first 
that their father loves them like crazy, that if they sat in a closet the rest of their lives, dad's love for them would not change. So dad needs to tell them that. He needs to show them that, that I'm not going anywhere. There's nothing you can do to shake my love for you. Um, the second thing kids need to know is what is what their dad believes about them. Um, you know, dads need to communicate to their kids that, I believe you have great character. I know that you can excel. I know you can have a good life. And then thirdly, if dad shows them that there's hope for their future, um, you know, those are all things that we as adults need and we want. And if dads can identify those things and and how they want to know that they're loved, they want to know that someone who loves them believes in them and that they know that someone who loves them believes there's hope for them, then they can turn and begin to give those things to their kids, and that's where they start. I think a lot of fathers get all caught up in the small stuff. Um, what sports should they play? What should they eat? What should they wear? How many friends should they have? Should they have this friend? Where should they go to school? Those are all important things, but they're not nearly as important as those big things that I just talked about. You also have a chapter that's titled... Um Focus on the play, not the game. And you encourage dads to engage with their, their kids. Talk a little bit about this notion of play as it relates to dads. Yes. Well, clearly I got this from some of my NFL buddies. <laughs> and, and one of the men said, you know, I had a coach who was one of the best coaches I've ever had. And he said to me before I went out on the field, it was in a Super Bowl game, don't worry about the game. Don't worry about winning the game. Just go out and focus on this play that I'm telling you to do right now for the next three minutes. And I think that that's wise counsel for fathers, to think, focus on what you need to do today and tomorrow. Don't worry about, you know, your child going down the wrong path. And don't worry about your child messing up in certain ways. But focus on getting a couple things right today and tomorrow. And if you just keep doing that... It'll turn out well, but I think that a lot of fathers feel very inadequate and very insecure because they look at the whole picture and think, I'm out of my child's life. I've messed up a lot. My child is 10 years old. There's no hope for our relationship. And and my um, message is, no, 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 that's not true. Let's start today and do one or two things right. Focus on that, and then the big picture will come together. You suggest that uh, father's words have the power to heal or to hurt, and you've touched on that um, already, but I, I'm wondering uh, for the father who's already used his words in a way that's been very hurtful, um, yeah. how do you then use those words, use different words yeah. uh, to then bring healing? Well, again, that goes back to the authority um, that a dad has in a child's eyes that, 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 that is different from a mother's. Um, and you're right. Father's words can wound their children deeply. Um, if a father says to a 6-year-old or 15-year-old, you're never going to amount to anything once, um, he's going to have to tell that child 15 times, I didn't mean it, you will. Hmm. But here's what a dad can do, because the truth is, all dads say things to their kids they don't mean. Many dads, you know, lose their tempers. Every father makes mistakes. You know, every father messes up with their kids. But the most important thing to do is to go to that child and say, you know what, when I said this and this and this, or when I yelled at you, I didn't mean it at all. I was having a bad day. I messed up. Messed up. Would you forgive me? And I will work from now forward to not do that again. Um, and, and that's, kids are so open 
to their father's asking for forgiveness. Now, the older the child, the longer it may take for the child to actually forgive you. If you've been estranged from a, a child for five or six years, and I work with a lot of dads who are that way with their kids, it's going to take a while for that child to trust you again, but they want to and they need to and they will. Um, so, And I tell dads this, the most forgiving person you're ever going to meet in your life is your child. Because the child needs you. The child wants you. Again, it's a child-to-adult relationship, not adult-to-adult relationship. And that's why the kids are so open to, uh, to, to forgiving their fathers if dads ask for it with a genuine heart. You encourage fathers to teach their children courage and truth. Is that with words? Is that by demonstration or a combination of, of both? Both, actually. You know, we're living in a day and age where, um, and I've seen this because I, I, I lived through a lot of it, you know, the sort of dissolution of any kind of moral structure, what is right, what is wrong, what is truth, what isn't. And so, but what I tell fathers in particular is, look, if you are your child's dad, you have the right to teach your child what you believe is true and right. Now, that's not going to be popular, but that's okay. This is your child. And have the courage to teach your child what you believe is true and right and good. That's your responsibility as a parent. Many parents, particularly fathers, abdicate this because they don't want their kids to um, offend other kids. They don't want to drive their kids away. They don't want their kids to um, be sort of the odd one in the class. But I tell fathers, great parenting takes courage, and it takes courage for you to teach your kids what you believe is right, and then for your kids to believe that and embrace that. Kids love that, because kids are looking to their dads to tell them what they think and believe. And um, but, but many fathers these days, I found, are timid to teach that, and my message to them is don't be timid. It takes courage to teach kids what you believe is true. And we're just about out of time, but you write about a triumvirate, uh, the hero's winning triumvirate. Uh, Tell us what that is and uh, how our listeners can get a copy of Hero. Sure. The triumvirate is perseverance, forgiveness, engagement, and they're all very linked. Men are great at persevering and being tenacious and going after things. And my, my message to them is, Go after your kids, forgive your kids, ask your kids for forgiveness, and then engage your kids. And once you engage your kids, persevere. Because a lot of fathers, I find, get their feelings hurt by their kids, a snarky teenager, whatever, and they get their feelings hurt and they withdraw from their kids. Don't do that. Persevere. Pursue your kids. Ask for forgiveness if you need to, and then engage those kids. Um, And they're all linked together. That's one of my favorite chapters, and I end with it. Any dad can ask me questions. Find me on megmeekermd.com. I have a lot more information. They can find the books there, um, online courses I write, or they can even write in and ask questions. I do my best to answer. Well, Dr. Meeker, thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. Thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. Again, the book is titled Hero. And if you're a dad, you are one, Being the Strong Father Your Children Need. It's published by Regnery. And uh, you can find uh, Dr. Meg Meeker. It says megmeeker.com for more information. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is our time. Later this hour, we're going to talk with the stream's Liberty McArder. We're going to talk about the latest on the battle for Charlie Gard. He's the UK 11-month-old whose uh, life hangs in the balance, and the, the courts there have uh, suggested that, well, ending his life is in his best interest. We'll bring you the latest on that uh, on that case. Well, yesterday, a San Antonio federal court began a trial that will decide whether or not Texans have, a, uh, have voting in uh, state house districts that discriminate against minority voters. According to the Austin American statesman, this confrontation is six years in the making, maybe a little longer. And if uh, successful, would lead to Texans voting in new districts in the 2018 election. My guest, Hans von Spakovsky, says the current redistricting plan being challenged in this lawsuit are virtually identical to the interim redistricting plans that were drawn up by the federal district court in 2012 after it threw out the 2011 redistricting plan of the legislature. Well, if you're confused by it all, you're not alone. Hans von Spakovsky is an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, and much more. He joins us to talk about this uh, case involving uh, Texas uh, voting districts. You don't have him? Oh, he's he's coming up later. I've done that whole introduction, and he's our next segment. Wow, I'm, I'm slipping. <laughs> Clark is, is trying to get my attention behind the glass there, and I have no idea what he's talking about because um, my show sheet here clearly indicates my interview is next segment and not this one. So I apologize. We'll get to that in just a few moments. But now you kind of know what uh, what's, that's going to be all about. After that eloquent introduction... <laughs> which I'll have to repeat in just a few moments. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, the Facebook guy, he says Facebook can actually be your church. Now, this past weekend, I have to tell you, Dan Rice, who has been really languishing over the last, well, we're into our third week of massive antibiotics, and it has really sapped every bit of his energy. So he has not been uh, working. He spends most of his time in and out of sleep and wears this pack that is pumping through a pick line in his arm directly into his heart. Massive doses of antibiotics. There are two different antibiotics, one that has a big pouch and that pumps 24-7. The other, twice a day, I, um, I administer. We call them hand grenades because they fit comfortably in your hand. And twice a day, they have to be um, added and they take about 40 minutes to an hour uh, for them to come in. Well, the doctor assured us that the these massive doses of antibiotics are responsible for his utter lack of of energy along with the fact that uh, once he caught the flu a few weeks back and then was hospitalized in that short space of time which was a little over a week he lost 20 pounds and if you know Dan Rice you know he's a very tall slender man and 20 pounds is a lot now if i had lost 20 pounds we'd be having a party and there'd be cake and i'd put the 20 pounds right back on but that's a whole other story Anyway, this past weekend, uh, we uh, went out to our family in Shoals. There's a Shoals Community Church, and we have uh, had the opportunity to to fellowship with them on several occasions. And they had um, a jam, a, a summer jam festival. And what they did was all of the folks in the church gathered. Uh, Shoals, as you probably know, is, has berry fields everywhere. And they put together jars of jam, and the congregation went out throughout the whole broad, it's kind of a rural area, and invited friends and neighbors to join them this past Sunday for a great Sunday of 
fellowship and music and food. And so we were invited many, many weeks and months ago to be a part of this. And um, when Dan Rice was diagnosed with this heart infection, my first thought was, well, we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to reschedule that. I had no idea it was a, as large an event as it actually was. And he said, no, we made a commitment to do this. We're going to do it. So he is laying, uh, uh, he's reclining this whole time, uh, can barely stay awake half the time. And he's writing charts and he's putting together song lists and emailing information to different musicians, which tells you something about um, Dan Rice and his commitment. So anyway, this weekend we went out to the Jam Festival. It started out with uh, the worship team, the house band, uh, they led worship for an hour. Then a group of friends uh, joined us and we led worship. They had a huge tent outside. They served a fresh barbecue lunch with ice cream and the, the whole nine yards. It was such a fun community event. I have to tell you, Facebook is nothing like that. It's nothing like Shoals Community Church. Now, we've been there when they're not having a big festival and they're handing out jam to everyone, which, by the way, I had for breakfast this morning. It was incredible. It was a mixture of all the berries of the season. Uh, Facebook is nothing like that. But Mark Zuckerberg is quoted. He's the CEO. Um, He said after Facebook hit the two billion user mark, he compared the site to a church and spoke about the need for great leaders in such a community, which may be true, saying a church doesn't just come together. It has a pastor who cares for the well-being of their congregation, making sure that they uh, have food and shelter. Now, I don't know if he sees himself as that uh, that pastor over uh, over Facebook, sort of uh, managing and, and the flock. Um, but he is comparing Facebook to um, to church. And then I saw another piece. Let me find this here. The Church of CrossFit. And this is what the article said. Gyms and other secular communities are starting to fill spiritual and social needs for many non-religious people. You always know if someone goes to Harvard or if they go to CrossFit, they'll tell you. This is a quote from a, a ministry innovation fellow at Harvard Divinity School. It's really interesting that evangelical zeal they have, they want to recruit you. So they're evangelical in their approach to CrossFit. CrossFit, he goes on, uh, the article goes on to say, uh, is his favorite example of a trend he has noticed how in the midst of the decline of religious affiliation in America and the rise of isolation and loneliness, many ostensibly non-religious communities are functioning in ways that look a little bit religious, he explained on Friday at the Aspen Ideas Festival, which he co-hosted at, uh, which is co-hosted rather by the Aspen Institute and the Atlantic. People's behavior and practice is really being unbundled from the institutions and identities that would have been homes for it. Uh, I was uh, raised Catholic, uh, Mr. Ter Kuehl says, uh, but yoga is really the practice where I find uh, my experience of contemplation. As institutional affiliation decreases, people have the same age-old desires for connection, relationship, connection to something bigger than themselves. Well, I have to tell you, CrossFit is it's it's not really something bigger than yourself. You're not going to find what you're looking for if you're looking for something bigger than yourself because there is something bigger than CrossFit and Facebook really is not going to be the the substitute for church that Mark Zuckerberg suggests it might be. Now he has a point that you know maybe there need to be people who shepherd what goes on there. Uh, Although that's a little scary if he's suggesting he himself should play that role, but maybe he's recruiting wise people to to communicate wisely with a sense of community. Uh, But the CEO suggested Facebook is able to offer a sense of community and uh, is um, uh, filling the gap left by uh, falling church membership, which raises for me the challenge of what what do we do in the church? And I'm not just 
talking about the event that we attend on Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night, maybe a midweek. But what are we doing as the church in our office, in our neighborhood, uh, at the uh, women's coffee, at the uh, at the gym, for that matter, on Facebook, that makes uh, those who are seeking something higher than themselves, as is the case with many who are looking to CrossFit to fill that void, what are we offering that uh, is appealing enough and suggests what is true, which is more important than what's appealing, about what God is offering himself um, to those who are seeking and in need of uh, what they may not recognize initially, uh, a Savior, a Father, one who nurtures and uh, loves unconditionally, but also provides uh, his Holy Spirit to transform and um, make what we do more meaningful, gives us a, a future and a hope that extends beyond this life, beyond what we do in the gym, beyond what we do and say on Facebook. So nice try, Mr. Zuckerberg. I, I get your point, and I think you have a valid point, but um, you need to go out to uh, you need to go out to the uh, the church for the jam festival um, out in Shoals, and maybe you'll see the difference. All right, coming up, we're actually going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about uh, the Texas voting districts and what the courts are uh, going to be considering over this next week. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, we're going to talk with the stream's Liberty McCarter. We'll get the latest on the, uh, on the battle for Charlie Gard, the 11-month-old in the U.K. whose life hangs in the balance. And the courts are going to decide whether he lives or dies. A hearing is scheduled for Thursday. That's coming up later this hour. Well, yesterday, a San Antonio federal court started a trial that will determine whether or not Texans have um, have been voting in state house districts that discriminate against minority voters. Well, according to the Austin American Statesman, this confrontation is about six years in the making. And if it's successful, it would lead to Texans voting in new districts in the 2018 elections. And of course, redistricting always has political implications, or should I say partisan implications. My next guest, Hans von Spakovsky, says this current redistricting Districting plan being uh, challenged in the lawsuit is virtually identical, I should say plural, are virtually identical to the interim redistricting plans drawn by the federal district in uh, 2012 after it threw out the 2011 redistricting plans of the legislature. The legislature adopted those interim plans as the new redistricting plan for Texas. Well, we're going to talk about that, and if you're confused, you're not alone. Joining us is Hans von Spakovsky. He is an authority on a number of a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, and much more. Thanks for joining us once again. Well, thanks for having me back. Well, what's going on in Texas? I know the trial began, this one-week trial began in San Antonio yesterday. Uh, You know, this is the typical kind of redistricting lawsuit that we get with uh, challengers saying that um, uh, some of the districts were drawn with a racial intent. Um, uh, States like Texas are put kind of in a tough position because... Uh, under the way the Voting Rights Act has been interpreted, they, to some extent, have to consider race in order to create districts that are safe for minority voters. The the key phrase they use in in the legal terminology is you have to have districts where minority voters collect their candidates of choice. But at the same time, while they're obligated to use some race under the Voting Rights Act, uh, the courts have also said you can't use too much race. 
And often it's really difficult to tell how much is enough and how much isn't enough. But it's particularly hard to distinguish between political gerrymandering, which is mm-hmm. you know perfectly constitutional, and racial gerrymandering because of the fact that African Americans, for example, as you know, are almost a monolithic voting bloc for the Democratic Party. So often if state legislatures, uh, Republican legislatures, are drawing up districts to try to make safe districts for Republicans to run, they, they of necessity are putting Democrats in particular districts uh, and allow those uh, Democrats to be black. The, the point of all this is, though, that in 2011, a federal district court found uh, some of the districts in Texas to have been a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, they used too much race uh, when they were drawing them. And so in 2012, the court itself actually drafted up a new redistricting plan. This is what they call an interim plan for elections that year and told the legislature, uh, these plans uh, will use temporarily for elections, but you've got to then draw up a new redistricting plan for Texas. What the Texas legislature did is they, they basically adopted the plans drafted up by um, the court. And yet now these challengers have gone back to court and said, oh, no, no, you can't do that. These redistricting plans are still racially discriminatory. So a better way would have uh, to say it would have been our redistricting plans are racially discriminatory? I mean, they're the ones that came up with it? Well, yeah, the court did. Yeah. Uh, but uh, look, what's really going on here is um, it, it, this is really a, a power play. You know, the, the state legislature in Texas is controlled by Republicans. Um, Democrats uh, are a minority now in the state legislature. And so they don't like the districts that have been drawn. They don't think it gives them enough Democratic seats. And so they use the Voting Rights Act really as a way of trying to force more Democratic seats to be drawn. And I, really, the, the, the current trial that's going on, like I said, it's, it's, to me it's very odd, because since the state legislature uh, basically adopted the plans drawn up by the federal district court, for the challengers to win, they're going to have to somehow show that the court itself was acting in a discriminatory manner when it drew up those interim plans, and I just don't see how they're going to be able to do that. Well, as I mentioned, the trial is before a three-judge panel. It started on Monday. Um, it's supposed to run for about a week of Friday, Saturday. When are we expecting that we'll hear from them? Uh, and how will that impact the, the next election and the likely appeal that will come when whoever loses uh, re- appeals this to the Supreme Court? Well, you know, there's no telling how quickly the court will issue its decision once the trial ends. I assume they'll do it fairly quickly because they know that even though it's 2017, um, it's not that far into the distance for uh, 2018, the 2018 elections. And, you know, if they, for example, find uh, against the state and in favor of the challengers and say, no, you've got to redo these plans, that's not something the state legislature can do instantly. You know, they're going to have to go into session, try to draw up new plans, all of that takes time, and then even when they have a new plan in place, remember, they've got to set all the deadlines for candidates to be able to file, to run for office. So I think they'll act pretty quickly. Uh, whatever the decision is, because this is a case involving a claim under the Voting Rights Act, um, they will have a direct appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
they don't go through the appellate courts. It goes directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's really possible um, that we could sometime in the fall have a case uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, uh, an appeal of this particular decision. Do we have any idea how the Supreme Court, of course, the makeup of it has changed somewhat, but uh, is there any precedent that one might look to to give us some indication how they'd likely rule in, a, in this Texas case? Well, in their last week before they shut down in June, uh, they issued a decision upholding a challenge to North Carolina's um, uh, uh, districts there, two of its congressional districts, uh, although there were some dissenting views on it. And, and they said, again, in that case, basically they laid out what I call the Goldilocks rule, which is you do have to use take account take race into account to some extent to protect minority voters, but you can't take it into account too much because then you're violating the equal protection clause and and the the parameters the court has set out are frankly just very very confusing. So I really don't know how uh, the three judge panel is going to come out in this case. It's really going to depend on the individual views. Of, of the judges and how they interpret the evidence. And clarity is not uh, likely anytime soon. No, it is not. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate it. Sure, anytime. Again, Hans von Spakovsky from the Heritage Foundation, uh, an authority on a variety of issues involving, uh, and we've been talking, of course, about this uh, case in Texas where redrawing the lines is, uh, is being called into question. Well, up next, as I mentioned, we're going to talk with Liberty McArder. She is a columnist with The Stream. And if you've been following the story of Charlie Gard, um, you found it to be, as I have, very uh, sobering. Um, in the U.K., the uh, European court, as well as uh, some sort of court in the U.K., are uh, determining the fate of an 11-month-old child whose parents very much want uh, this child, uh, very much want to... Uh, give him an opportunity to get some alternative treatment that uh, some 300 plus doctors have indicated they believe uh, might have some impact on his uh, on his health. But the courts have on several occasions, this is just the latest, said, no, um, it's in his best interest that we allow him to die, that we remove life support and his life uh, come to a close. Well, that uh, case has drawn uh, attention from all over the world. The Pope, the President of the United States, and others. You have a couple of members of Congress who've introduced legislation allowing these parents to have uh, temporary residence so that their child could come here and get the kind of medical care that several hospitals have indicated they would like to provide. Uh, there, the Vatican is offered to provide uh, care for this child uh, at no cost uh, in Italy. So they're they're. Uh, a number of options that the parents have available to them. They have raised several millions of dollars uh, to also facilitate whatever uh, decision they might ultimately make about their son and his uh, his health care. But the courts are saying, no, we don't believe that's in his best interest. So it really raises some uh, significant uh, questions about the authority of parents uh, in a socialist uh, society and in a case where you have socialized medicine. So we're going to talk more about that with Liberty McCarter when she joins us in our next segment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a British judge told the parents of a baby boy, Charlie Gard, on Monday that they have until Wednesday afternoon to submit what he called new and powerful evidence that would convince him, that would demonstrate that their son should be kept alive to receive experimental treatment. 
Judge Nicholas Francis set the deadline ahead of a second hearing planned for Thursday afternoon that could run into fr- to a Friday at the Royal Courts of Justice in London following a dramatic day in the case that has attracted a lot of attention from the Pope to the president, well, the world. There is not a person alive, the judge said, that doesn't want to save Charlie. Of course, the judge has the power to do that. He went on to say, if there is new evidence, I will hear it. If you bring new evidence to me and I consider that evidence changes the situation, I will be the first to welcome that outcome. Well, Charlie is 11 months old. He suffers from a rare mitochondrial disease and has brain uh, brain damage. His parents, uh, they want him to travel to the United States or to Italy to receive treatment known as Uh, nucleoside therapy, which has shown success in reducing the symptoms of some types of mitochondrial disease. Standing in the way is London's Great Ormond Hospital and an independent guardian appointed to represent Charlie, the 11-month-old, who have argued that the infant's life support system should be switched off and he should be allowed to die, they say, with dignity. I would say otherwise. Well, here to talk with us about that is Liberty McCarter. She is a columnist with The Stream, and she's written a column on this subject. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Well, let's trace a bit of the history and the players in this uh, case in which the state, essentially the, the uh, judicial uh, side of the uh, the state, is determining the future of this 11-month-old boy. Right. So, you know, a lot of people are asking the question, well, if the parents want to take him to the United States for experimental therapy, shouldn't they be able to do that? And and that's really the crux of the issue here. Uh, the doctors say, as you just said, uh, that it's in Charlie's best interest to go ahead and be removed off of life support, even though there is this other therapy out there that might help him. And the courts have backed them up. They've said, uh, look, it's in his best interest to go ahead and die now. And so because of previous court rulings, it's actually illegal for Charlie to leave the hospital, to go uh, to another country for treatment, even though other hospitals have offered to take him in. And uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, the doctors wouldn't even let Charlie go home to die. And so last week, people who were watching his case thought that it was pretty much sealed, that he would have to be taken off life support. And then there was this uh, surprise appeal. The doctors did have this new evidence they wanted to present. And, and so here we are again, back in the courts. Um, but again, it's up to the courts and not the parents. Now, did the did the citizens of UK realize that they were ceding that kind of authority to the courts? Because the arbiter here of Charlie's future and what's in his best interest isn't the parents. It is rather the courts under this socialist system and this medical uh, system that the, the state oversees. Well, I think that a lot of people are waking up and realizing just how much power the government has whenever it's in charge of your health care. You know, they're able to tell uh, Charlie's parents, you know, well, we don't think there's anything else that can be done, and so nobody else is going to be allowed to do anything either. You can't take your child anywhere. He has to die. Um, you had over 350,000 people signing a petition asking the hospital to let him go to the U.S., and that petition was presented to the hospital on Sunday. You've had people protesting outside of Prime Minister Theresa May's office. Um, there's been, you know, this international pressure from the Pope and the United States president and um, hospitals in the United States and at the Vatican. 
And so I think people are starting to wake up and say, hey, um, this is not good when the state, when a court can tell parents that they don't even have the right to say what happens to their uh, sick child. Yeah, to seek treatment elsewhere. The Vatican has offered to provide treatment for the child at no cost. There are a pair of Republican lawmakers that have offered to extend uh, a residency to the parents so that he can come here and uh, receive treatment. There are a couple of hospitals here in the United States who say we are, are willing and, and want to to treat this child as well as some physicians in Europe. This is not an issue of the medical care costing too much. The parents have raised millions from private donations to pay for these treatments. It's not an issue of uh, being burdened by this cumbersome child. The parents want to leave Europe and bring him to the United States or Italy for treatment. It's not an issue of there being no medical professionals that are willing to treat him. As I've mentioned, several doctors and hospitals are pleading to treat him. This is an issue of, of government control and them deciding uh, what's in the best interest of somebody else's child. And this this ought to be chilling to anyone who's watching this unfold. Definitely. I think people need to pay attention to this case because there are implications. And, you know, we may say, oh, well, Charlie, um, his condition is very rare, which it is. Um, so this won't happen again. But, hmm. you know, what if, if the government can tell Charlie's parents that he has to be taken off life support, what about somebody with um, another disease that's more common, maybe a progressed state of cancer or another disability that is not as rare? And so will the government at that point be able to say it's in that person's best interest to die too? That's scary, um, but this is kind of the slope that we are yes. working on if, if uh, this, this is able to happen. And so it's really important for people to watch and ask themselves those questions. Absolutely. What is this, the state's compelling interest? And I'm not as familiar with the, uh, the system there in, uh, in the UK, the European courts, but what's their compelling interest in uh, suggesting that he has not just the, it seems to me that he has an obligation uh, to die, determining who gets to live and who has that obligation uh, to die, as in this case. Well, I think it really um, comes down to, uh, in this case anyway, and I mean, I'm not an expert, a legal expert as far as, you know, UK court Mm -hmm. system goes, but for this particular case, um, for the doctors have said that they just don't see any chance that this therapy would work, and they are afraid that it will cause Charlie more suffering. Um, But other doctors are now saying that there is a 10% chance that it will work, and uh, the parents, they just want to exhaust all their options they know that this very well may be a fatal disease for Charlie, but they want to try everything. But um, the doctors, they they just wanted to uh, keep him from doing something that I guess they thought wouldn't work. And so that's what the courts have uh, supported them in and saying that, okay, well, since this isn't going to work and it may cause Charlie more suffering, um, then it's just better for him to go ahead and die now. And so they're claiming to have Charlie's uh, best interest. And other people have brought up the question, well, is this really about Charlie's best interest or is this about maintaining control of the uh, state-run healthcare system that they have in the UK? And, you know, are there other things going on, you know, that the mm-hmm. doctors don't want to give up control and let another doctor in another healthcare system in another country treat Charlie successfully? So you would hate to, and I'm not saying that that is the case, but that's the kind of questions that are being asked because it just seems so bizarre that you wouldn't let the parents 
do what they feel they needed to do and pursue other options and other doctors. Yeah, that they're fully capable of financing. They have a, a specific resource that's available and so on. I appreciated what Rebecca Haglin wrote in a recent column in the Washington Times. She writes, America, take note. If we demand a society where the government gods provide free health care, we will pay for it with our freedom, even by giving up the sacred right to protect our sons and daughters. And we also may be forced one day to sacrifice our own children to the gods. And again, referring to the the state, essentially ceding uh, the authority that has been given to parents by God himself to determine what's in the best interest of their children. Now, there's a hearing on Thursday, and at that point, they are supposed to provide uh, what is um, new and dramatic evidence. That's what the, the judge called it. He's requiring new and dramatic evidence um, uh, before um, changing the position that has already been taken. Right. And so this judge actually at the high court in London, he ruled against Charlie's parents back in April saying that uh, Charlie did need to be taken off life support. So basically they are tasked with changing this particular judge's mind. And that's why he's saying the evidence is going to have to be dramatic in order to Mm. change my mind. Um, And so, but they've been in contact with these hospitals and doctors from around the world. Um, And so his parents have been fighting. And so now you have uh, seven different doctors coming forward, signing a letter saying that there's new evidence that needs to be looked into. We think that, you know, Charlie may have more of a chance than we even thought before with this experimental therapy. So that's what they are having to collect and turn in by Wednesday. And then Thursday, there will be a full day of a hearing in which the evidence will be presented. Well, this is a very sobering story. We'll certainly watch with great interest and be in prayer for Charlie and his parents. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us. Well, thank you for talking about Charlie's case. It's an important one. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Liberty McCarter is the uh, a columnist for The Stream with the latest in the battle for Charlie Gard, the 11-month-old child whose future is in the hands of the justice system, uh, the courts in the U.K. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show, talking with uh, Liberty McCarter in the previous segment about uh, Charlie Gard. I suppose it's not altogether surprising. We've watched this slippery slope uh, as it has continued its trajectory downward for many, many years, particularly those of us in the pro-life movement who predicted at the beginning that this is where we were headed. I noted that uh, Ian Tuttle wrote a piece for the National Review about the court-ordered killing of Charlie Gard, and he wrote this, Any day now, they, they'll kill Charlie Gard. He was born last August, suffers from an inherited disease called infantile onset uh, encephaloc... Uh, well mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, generally referred to as MDDS. The disease is extraordinarily rare. At present, there are only 16 known cases worldwide. Most patients who suffer from it die in early infancy. Charlie is unable to breathe unaided, suffers from seizures, has severe brain damage. For 10 months, Charlie has been living in the intensive care unit at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. In March, his doctors decided that there was nothing more they could do for him, and they recommended that his parents, Connie Yates and Chris Gard, 
Guard withdraw his ventilator. They refused on the grounds that an untried experimental treatment was available in the United States. The hospital, in accordance with British law, applied to the courts to forestall further treatment. In April, and this is against the wishes of the parents, in April, the high court found for the doctor and against the parents. In May, the Court of Appeals uh, upheld the initial decision. In early June, the Supreme Court agreed. And this week, the European Court of Human Rights, the last court of jurisdiction, refused to intervene. Charlie's parents have raised enough money for private donations to fund the experimental treatment, but the court decision prohibits his removal to the United States. Whenever they see fit to do so, the doctors at Great Ormond Street Hospital can now remove Charlie's life support. Of course, we had a brief reprieve, but unless there is extraordinary evidence presented, that will make no difference. According to the Honorable Mr. Justice Nicholas uh, Francis of the High Court's Family Division, who authored the decision subsequently upheld by the higher courts, death is in Charlie's best interest. There was no scientific basis for believing that Charlie would respond positively to the experimental American treatment. Meanwhile, there is unanimity among the experts from whom I have heard that nucleoside therapy cannot reverse structural brain damage. If, wrote Justice Francis, Charlie's damaged brain function cannot be improved, as all agree, then how can he uh, be any better off than he is now? It was with a heavy heart, the judge said, that he sided with the doctors. Charlie should be permitted to die with dignity. In conclusion, Justice Francis praised the parents he had just overruled. Most importantly of all, I want to thank Charlie's parents for their brave and dignified campaign for it on his behalf. But more than anything, to pay tribute to their absolute dedication to their wonderful boy from the day that he was born. End quote. So it was that successive uh, uh, courts in the UK and in European Uh, in Europe, rather, simultaneously found that Connie Yates and Chris Gard had devoted themselves unhesitatingly to their son's welfare for 10 months, and also that Yates and Gard could not be trusted to act in their son's best interest. Both things were affirmed in that statement. The logic of this decision, he writes, that a a patient's best interests can be conclusively determined by an objective third party possessed of adequate scientific knowledge will be familiar to anyone who has watched state power over issues of life and death expand through throughout the Western world in recent years. In the early 2000s, this logic was at work in the Cherry, Terry Chivo case, in which American courts took it upon themselves to ascertain Chivo's unexpressed will and enact it. Inevitably, they endorsed her death on the grounds that she would not want to live with no hope in her present vegetative state. Likewise, in Europe, medical expertise has um, been not simply a justification for, but an encouragement to assisted suicide. Guidance from medical professionals has more than a little to do with the fact that in Belgium and the Netherlands and elsewhere in Europe, assisted suicide is now an acceptable remedy for people suffering not just from terminal illnesses, but from depression, autism and anorexia. These decisions, too, were probably products of compassion. But the state does not suffer with the sick. Justice Francis did not look at the question from the assumed point of view of the child, as the law naively demands. Justice Francis looked at the question from Justice Francis' point of view. The question then is not what would Charlie Gard want, a question no one could answer. The question is what do we owe to people such as Charlie who cannot speak for themselves? What duty of care do we owe them simply on account of their being human beings who are by nature possessed of an inalienable dignity? 
what obligations do we have to those who suffer and how should we understand their suffering? And pertinent to this case, under what circumstance should the tightest bonds of affection, those between parents and child, be subordinated to the judgment of the state? The precedent established by Charlie Gard's case will metastasize as similar decisions have. It will be made to apply to children and with more familiar illnesses and better prognoses. It will be used to dismiss the input of parents whose values and priorities when it comes to medical care and end-of-life issues do not align with those of the state. It may be used simply to clear beds for worthier patients in a health care system with very limited resources. This presumably will be compassionate, too. Any day now, it's highly likely they will kill Charlie Gard. But it's in his own best interest, they say. And they asked us to see that that is the case. We'll continue to follow this story. Again, the hearing is scheduled for Thursday. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Glennis Whitwer, who is the author of Doing Busy Better, Enjoying God's Gifts of Work and Rest. I get that work part, but the rest part, that can kind of be a a tough one. We're going to talk with her about uh, doing busy better, um, including rest as a an intentional part of uh, God's design for us, his pattern for humankind. And perhaps we can find a little balance along the way. So we're looking forward to uh, our conversation with her. We're still working on our guest for Thursday. And then, of course, on Friday, we will return to uh, more of a Friday fun fair. So we'll look forward to uh, to enjoying a bit of that. Now, earlier in the program, we talked with uh, Dr. Meg Meeker, who is the author of Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. And I would encourage those of you who did not have the opportunity to hear that conversation or to hear about the book, you can always go to our podcast, go to kpdq.com, and there you will find generally uh, by the evening of the day of the interview and certainly by the next morning, you can find a podcast of all the conversations, including my a conversation earlier today with Dr. Meg Meek regarding the book Hero, Being the Strong Father Your Family Needs. We also uh, spoke with um, uh, Hans von Spakovsky, who is an authority on a wide range of issues, uh, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, and so on. We talked about the Texas district that's gone to court over their voting districts. Are they set up in a way to disenfranchise minority communities? We're going, we talked with uh, uh, Hans von Spakovsky about this case case, uh, which has uh, certainly uh, the potential to impact other states and how they uh, draw their uh, their district lines as well. Uh, all of that a part of the Georgine Rice show that can be heard and reheard on our podcast. And I would encourage you uh, to check that out. Also, if you've been thinking about a trip to Israel, I want to remind you that uh, KPDQ in conjunction with uh, Salem media stations all across the country are putting together yet another trip to Israel. Uh, I've had the opportunity to travel with them many times, and I so appreciate Genesis uh, Tours and the job they do because their motivation isn't just simply uh, to provide opportunities for people to tour Israel, although uh, that is uh, certainly a goal, and that's what they do very well. But coming from the, the perspective of uh, the Christian connection to the nation of Israel, the history uh, there, and what the scriptures have to say is really the the centerpiece of what they do. And uh, you can find out more about the uh, trip that's coming up in November at kpdq.com. There are banners across the top, and look for the Experience Israel banner, and there you can find all the important details. The dates, I believe, are November the 1st through the 10th, the cost to all the accommodations, uh, what the tour will involve, and so on. Uh, we're going to have 
uh, Sean Thornton. Uh, Pastor Sean Thornton is going to be leading this trip. So in addition to the opportunity to visit the various sites that are meaningful to us who are followers of Christ and appreciate uh, God's plan of salvation that originated there and expanded through the whole world through the faithful ministry of the disciples. Um, but you have an opportunity to hear from a pastor, a Bible teaching pastor who can uh, help to open the scriptures in a, in a new and meaningful way on the, ge- the, the geography in the locations where these events took place. So check that out at kpdq.com for more information. Well, we're out of time. I do want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend is vacationing, but technically he is the producer of the program. And again, I want to remind you that tomorrow we'll talk with Glennis Whitworth. She is the author of Doing Busy Better. So if you are a busy person or know someone who is, let them know that at 4.30 tomorrow we're going to talk with Glennis Whitworth. The book subtitle is Enjoying God's Gifts of Work, and it is a gift, but also rest, something we sometimes feel a little bit guilty engaging in, but is part of God's uh, pattern and design for us. That's coming up uh, on Wednesday. Hey, thanks so much for listening to The Georgine Rice Show and making it part of your day. I hope you have a great evening. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.